Our scripture reading today is from 1 Kings 17, 17 through 24. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for reading that passage of scripture. Good morning, everyone. My name is Paul Lim. It's a great delight and privilege to be here with you. Um, The last time I spoke here, uh, you all were meeting at the hotel of the uh, I-65, but I see now that you've got your own place to worship, uh, your own space, so that's really great, and praise the Lord for that. So um, if you're okay and inclined, let's pray one more time as we look to the Lord. Gracious God and glorious Lord, we come to this portion of our liturgy where we have just heard your, read, uh, your word read. Now we anticipate your word expounded and proclaimed for your glory among your people now. May you do your work of transformation and transmission of your truth and beauty and goodness contained in this very, very interesting passage. And may, you, may your people be edified and encouraged to follow harder after you. In your name we prayed. Amen. So for those of you with whom I haven't had the pleasure and uh, privilege of meeting, I've been at Christ Press since uh, late 2015 as a scholar in residence, a position I hold hold along with my full-time position as a professor of the history of Christianity at Vanderbilt University. So it's between these two places and positions that I find my great delight and uh, and sense of calling and fulfillment as well. Um, Let me start uh, with a question for us. When are you most likely to trust God? When are you most likely to trust God? I guess the easy answer for most of you would be like, all the time, right? 24-7, nonstop. Okay, then you don't really need to listen to the sermon, but (laughs) if you're like me, let me ask you, is it when things are going smoothly and very well? Or is it when things are not going well at all and when you're wondering, how am I going to get out of this one? While in all sincerity, both as a parent and as a preacher, I do most sincerely hope you've not had to face many situations that were dark, desperate, and the hours that have generated more doubt and fear. Yet, in all honesty, I have to tell you that you will face them. In most, if not all human cultures, we do instinctively do our very best to ensure ourselves 
against such undesirable outcomes, right? I mean, that's just human nature and that's what we do as parents, as providers, and so on. And yet when I ask myself this same question, I am, as embarrassing as it is to say, likely to forget God when things are going great, and also I'm likely to blame God when things are going terrible. But if trusting is similar to being aware of and being dependent on God, then it would definitely have to be when things are going haywire, at least for me. We're starting a new series, a sermon series on Elijah, and I usually preach uh, once a month, most, mostly at Old Hickory, but I am supposed to be going around to these other locations. I haven't gone around here in quite a while, but uh, I don't know why, but we'll leave that for another day. Uh, each, time, each time I preach, I don't get to pick the text. Most of the time, I'm usually given a title, so I feel like I'm taking a, an English final exam with an essay to write. You show up and they tell you this is a text and this is a title, good luck or blessings or whatever. <laughs> this essay being the sermon to be delivered that Sunday. So when I was given this text and I read it, my reaction was all too typical. Oh shucks, how will I preach this one? <laughs> That's why I far prefer to pick my own text. But what relevance is there of this story of the ravens, widow of Zarephath, and prophet Elijah with my life in Nashville, Tennessee in 2022? Might be the question that might have been generated in your heart as our friend read the text for us this morning, as it was my own question when I was given the text a month and a half ago, and I read it the first time, and I said, hmm, what do I do here, right? So, but then as you actually kind of think about this text, there is more to it than than I initially thought. So what I'm going to do this morning is to actually give you a little bit of a context by starting from the beginning of chapter 17 to introduce the story of Elijah and then kind of climax or kind of reach the final with this text that we have just read. So I don't know what you think about Elijah. I mean, uh, what, what do we know about Elijah? Let's do a crowdsourcing session for the next 90 seconds. What do we know about Elijah? Prophet, okay. Prophet Elijah. What else? Sorry? Still alive. alive, So never experienced physical death. Okay, great. Uh, What else? Right. He prayed that there be no rain and there was no rain. He prayed that there be rain and the rain came. All right. Rain man. All right. So, okay. So he's a rain man and never experienced death. A prophet. What else? He... Confronted the prophets of Baal. Okay, so Rayman and a prophet's uh, confrontationalist. Okay, great. I think that's a very, very good way to start. Um, so I think we, if we were to start this uh, story or this message from verse 1, we get a very good sense of who he is, when and where he lived, and how he encountered God, and how he experienced the goodness, grace, and glory of the God of Israel. I will say that he was a man full of emotional and psychological ups and downs. His life, as you study them, is really, really, really a lot of ups and downs. And I think the series of this, uh, this uh, Elijah series is uh, called something about extraordinary, extraordinary things that God does through ordinary people. So Elijah is, in in very real way, ordinary, and that should cause some encouragement for a lot of us. The two key prophets whose lives and ministry are recorded in First and Second Kings are Elijah and his protege, Elisha. They were by no means perfect. 
Elijah had issues, I think, what we will call today with some mental health or depressive type who has severe ups and downs, and we'll see uh, throughout the series about those issues. Elisha had issue with anger management, and uh, we'll probably get to that later on as well. He really did. And yet God chose them and used them faithfully to bring redemption for the people of God. So we're back to the first question we began our time with. Life is a matter of trust. Then whom or what do you really trust? How and why? For many of us, the answer might be, I trust me, I trust money, or my parents, or the security that my network provides, whether the internet or metaphysical network that we believe in. Or for others of us, the answer might be, I don't know whom to trust, and I don't really want to find out. I want to acknowledge the diversity of perspectives that are represented in all our hearts and lives right here in this room today. So then allow me to take you to the beginning of Elijah's ministry, which coincided with the time of the worst king in Israel's history, King Ahab, after whom the protagonist in Moby Dick, Captain Ahab, is named. Ahab was, for lack of a better descriptor, a bad dude. He did everything against the express command of the Lord. God says something. He would say, I ain't doing that. In fact, I'm going to do the very opposite of what God had prescribed and commanded me and my people to do. Then enters Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead, who came to confront King Ahab and said, As long as the Lord lives, if you have your Bibles, whether physical or on your phones, it'll be good to turn to it, 1 Kings 17. Because in verse 2, verse 1, it says, As long as the Lord lives, the God of Israel, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my words. Talk about a hostile reception. Talk about a tough, high-intensity, super high-stress-level task. To tell an egomaniacal tyrant and dictator that you're basically screwed because without the rain, no agricultural products could go, no cattle could survive, and no human life could be sustainable. This is a disaster in the making. And Elijah was to confront this dictator about that. Our sermon together today will not have three points, but rather three landmarks that we're going to visit together. We'll talk about ravens as DoorDash guys as first landmark. We then will talk about widows from widow from Zarephath as unlikely recipient of God's miracle as second landmark. And then we'll talk about the resurrection of a son as the third landmark. So ravens, a widow, and a resurrection. So ready? Let's go. All right? So after Elijah prophesied against Ahab's inhumane dictatorial reign that was bent on creating hell on earth, the Lord spoke to Elijah and said, I want you to go and hide in the Kareth Ravine, and you will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. I don't know about you, but if I'm Elijah, I'll be like, what? what? <laughs> so, okay, and here's why. Okay, let's, let's think about... Think about what improbable series of words there must, these must have sounded to Elijah and perhaps to you and me. At least to me, they were really improbable words. Uh, and yet, at that particular moment, as I was kind of thinking about this, I was reminded of another prophet. His name is Isaiah, 
whose prophecy in the 55th chapter, verses 8 and 9, it says, For my thoughts, my thoughts, are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. They transcend ours. They exceed our wildest imaginations sometimes, as we see in the case of Elijah and the ravens. Why are ravens improbable sources of food supply? Well, would you like to receive your food delivery from ravens? Me? No, 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 not at all. They are selfish, first of all, and they are scavenger types. I mean, the types you find on Old Hickory Boulevard or Cold Springs Boulevard, picking off the carcasses of trafficked victims, mostly animals. Them? Absolutely not. And yes, the Lord says, they will bring you food. They are the ones who will bring you food, Elijah. And if I'm Elijah, I'm sitting there, hmm, I know you're like, your ways are beyond mine and higher than my ways, so I'm, I guess I'm going to have to trust. And it, it seems like from this story and throughout the life of Elijah, it was a matter of trust. Trusting God is so much easier said from the pulpit than practice in your home or in your workplace. I, I am the first one to acknowledge that. There is a gap. There is a gap between what God, you know, there's a gap between what I say and what I do. And so ravens come as the first landmark for the life of Elijah. Notice with me in verse 6. The ravens brought them food in the morning and in the evening. It says, twice a day, skip lunch, but so, hey, but who's complaining, right? I mean, you're getting free food, albeit from the ravens, but they're bringing you bread and and it says, yes, they're actually bread and meat. So you don't just get bread, you don't just get meat. There's a diversity and variety of food kind of items that uh, this DoorDash animal brings to you. And here you go, literally DoorDash, like, I'm going to bring it right to you. And the ravens brought them. And Elijah's learning kind of one meal at a time what it means to kind of depend on God for his daily, literally daily sustenance. And I want us to kind of think about that. I want us to actually put ourselves, perhaps if possible, in Elijah's situations and shoes. Hiding and being passive in one way, right? Because, I mean, the background is this. Ahab is completely infuriated with Elijah. I mean, imagine a guy who shows up out of nowhere and says, you know what, until I say so, you're not going to have rain or dew at all. You're saying, like, who is this guy? And he just disappears. So what are you going to say? Get that guy. Bring that guy to me. So he's hiding out in this, you know, ravine, and no one knows where he is. So he is hiding out and being passive, or rather being, uh, being actively dependent on the Lord because you have no idea where to turn to. You have no idea whom to trust, certainly not your emperor or king. And so you are pressed up against the wall, and you are trusting God. I don't know about you, but COVID-19 is something that I've never experienced before, and I'm sure you haven't either. It's something that is quite surreal, isn't it? I mean, now that I'm standing here speaking in front of you, there's almost no one, one uh, brother wearing a mask, and that's it. Do you remember two years ago? Do you remember a year ago? Do you remember, like, doubling up your mask and having all kinds of things and and, and yet, we think it's in our rearview mirror of our life story, but it really isn't. COVID-19 is, among other things, one, a, an absolutely global pandemic. And whether we are Republicans or Democrats, we know that thing existed and does still exist in some ways. And the ensuing crises have brought us to be reminded of, among others, 
One, fragility of life and frailty of our existence. Lives have been lost, close ones, families, parents, siblings, friends, co-workers, and so on, and the frailty of our existence as well. Thus the greater need for the objects of trust. What do you really trust? Okay, you might say, I don't trust Anthony Fauci. Fine, then whom do you trust? Is it going to be Fox News? Is it going to be CNN? It's a matter of trust. Trust is source of information, whether it is describing a situation or prescribing some remedies. So let me ask you, friends, whom do you trust today? Let's move to the second landmark, shall we? A desperate widow and her son and a strange provision of God for Elijah through this foreign widow. If you were to look at from verse 7 through 16, we pick up that story of this widow. And I want us to kind of zero in on that story because it really provides a beautiful kind of backdrop to the passage that we have just read. So this is what Dr. Sandra Koenig from Seattle Pacific University had to say about this particular passage. She says, this chapter contains three related stories about how God's provision is not ultimate. The brook dries up. The jar of oil is about to run out. The widow's son dies. But then God's, God provides again. As Elijah trusts God, he must also live on the edge of that trust. That when something else happens, God will again come through. Again and again, I am reminded of the fact that God's thoughts and God's ways are not our ways and means. Here is a widow, and think of this widow, and think of the word widow. That means your husband is no more. That means you're in a very vulnerable and frail position. You're economically challenged. You're having a very go, tough go of, of life. You're in the middle of an ecological and economic and existential crisis. Brooks have dried up. There is no more water. And then there is also this, uh, you're poor, and you're, because as we'll read, you know what she's about to do? She's actually going to go pick up some sticks to start fire, to break, bake her bread. Why? Why? This is going to be the last meal that she's going to have with her son. After that, they're just going to starve to death. I mean, seriously, think about that. Praise the Lord that you have not, and I have not had to face a situation like that. But there have been people in the past, there are people in the present moment in, on planet Earth for whom this story is uh, sadly all too familiar. Now, this is how God kind of comes through in her life. All right, she's going, and then, and God says to Elijah, You know what? I have actually provided, talked to, commanded this widow to provide for you. So Elijah hears these two things that neither the ravens nor the widow hears. And that is, God speaks to Elijah and says, You know what? Let me tell you something improbable. Let me tell you that ravens will bring you food. Let me tell you that this widow who's about to die, and he's actually going to grab the last sticks so that she can start a fire to bake her last batch of bread so that she can die with her son, she's going to be the one to provide you food. So as, uh, as Sandra Koenig said, you know, Elijah is having to live on the edge of that trust. You're sort of Elijah at a cliffhanger. He's actually kind of at the very precipice of what it means to trust God in those most dire and desperate situations of life. As I said to you earlier, when things are going well for me, I am likely to forget God. When things are going badly for me, then I am likely to blame God. And yet, I am more cognizant of and dependent on God to come in as my rescuer and redeemer. So Elijah is in that situation at the precipice of life's most dire existence. And he's having to think about what it means to live in trusting God. 
Ravens brought him food, but then the brook has dried up, so he needs to move. He needs to go somewhere else, and he's going to live in a widow's house. I don't know about you, but it occurred to me that, yeah, that must look kind of strange too. It would look somewhat strange if you have a pastor living in a widow's house and, and a son. It looks kind of like, well, what are they doing? And it wasn't that different in that case. So here we pick up that story. So she's going, and then she says, you know what? Um, I'll provide you with food. And then he says to Elijah, you know what? I'm going to actually do a miracle so that the jar of flour and jug of olive oil, they're almost at the bottom. They're almost at the bottom, and, but guess what I'm going to do? They will never be depleted. They will never run dry. So that that will be a palpable reminder for you all that I am the Lord. It is, guess what is similar to? Guess what the people of Israel experienced? It was manna. Manna from the Lord that's going to come and that, you know, you couldn't get too much, right? Because God says, I'm going to actually show you that I'm going to provide for you every day. Not every two days, not every three days, but every day I'll provide for you, except for the Sabbath day. But then I'll provide, is that then it'll be a double portion. So that means that God has provided, God has emerged as a daily sustainer for the people of Israel. And Elijah is having to experience that through the generosity and hospitality of this stranger named a widow of Zarephath. So she experiences it. And then, you know what? He says, you know, can you give me a drink of water? And she's about to do that. And he told her, can you actually go make me some bread? And that's when she told him, look, look, I don't know who you are, but you know what? I'm about to eat my last piece of bread and die. And then Elijah says something really profound and beautiful, the most often repeated command from God. You know what that is? Do not, what? Fear. Do not fear. Don't be afraid, but trust me when I tell you that you can go make the bread for me. Because when you do so out of faith, you're you're afraid of your life. I mean, because of course you'll be afraid. Wouldn't I be afraid? Absolutely, I'll be afraid. I'll be so desperate. I'll be just so resigned to this imminent death that I'm like, oh man, I'm going to die because I'm going to make my last meal and I'm going to die. Think of yourself in that most desperate situation. This is where the, the widow is. And the Lord speaks to Elijah, and then she's going to, for whatever reason, she's moved by the, the I, I have no idea, but she decides to trust. She probably said, you know, it's my, either I eat this or not, I'm going to die anyway. Let me, I might as well trust God. And guess what? That's right, kind of the story that we pick up. And then in verse 15, it says, she went away and did as Elijah had told her, so there was food every day for them. The jar and jug had not run dry. And this is a key phrase right here. In keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. So this miracle is both for Elijah and for the widow and her family. It is really to kind of show up. God is showing up and showing out that, you know what? I'm worthy of your trust. Even in the most desperate and dire circumstances, this is an economic crisis, this is an existential crisis, this is an environmental crisis, this is an ecological crisis, and she and Elijah are having to trust nothing else of their own but on God. On God how? On God's word. So they're hanging on to every word that God has spoken in the same way that in 2022, in the midst of COVID, in the middle of other crises that you and I may be facing, we're having to depend on the word of the Lord. We come to the third landmark, which is the climax of crises. First, it was a food shortage for Elijah, the prophet of the Lord. Ravens came to the rescue. 
Second, it was a food shortage for the widow in Zarephath and her son and for Elijah. So one person now is three persons. She came to his and her rescue due to the obedience to the improbable request and command. Again, don't be afraid was the lesson she likely learned, however temporary it might have been. So we need to be reminded of this until some other inflection point comes again in our life journey. Do not be afraid. Put your faith in me. So, and sure, surely came another inflection point of crisis in this widow's life. This time it'll come not in the form of a drought, not in the form of a famine, but in the form of death. What I find really interesting here is that both the widow and the prophet evidence similar uh, kind of expressions of faith or lack thereof in some ways, although the prophet does a tiny bit better. So let's have a look. The narrator of the story is very terse and gets right to the point. The son of a widow became ill, grew worse and worse, till he stopped breathing. So he died. Notice what the widow said. Now think about, let's put ourselves in a widow's situation. Your life was really desperate. You lost your husband. Life is getting, going from bad to worse. You basically have one meal left, and some weird guy comes along and says, Trust me, make me some bread, and you will not die, and you will not have your olive oil or flour run dry. And guess what? That's what happened. So you think that some good thing is happening. He's now sojourning with you. We don't know how long, but I'm thinking, hey, it's not bad, because maybe this whole provision of flour and olive oil is connected to this guy. So I don't mind him as a sojourner upstairs. So he's kind of squatter, rent-free, but that's okay. I get free food. This is the arrangement. And they're living kind of together for some time. And guess what? Your son is sick. And his, his sickness will lead unto death. Notice the woman's reaction. Notice what she says. Because it says in verse 18, she said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Do you know what she said? What did she say? She's saying, okay, bad thing happened. My son died. And I am having this kind of a, a theology of retribution. If I sin, it'll inevitably and inexorably lead to a, some kind of divine recompense. That's going to be divine reaction and divine punishment. That is because my sin deserves that punishment right here. She has what scholars would call Deuteronomistic perspective on life. Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy says, do this and live and do not obey and you will die. And she's thinking that. She says, okay, did, did I do something wrong? Because I thought my life was going great. But then I must have done something wrong and you have come to remind me of some secret sin in my past that God has dredged up and caused my son's death. Right? And think about that. I mean, she is now just beside herself. I mean, her son, beloved son, has died. I mean, she was going to cook the last meal for him and her, and then, and, and then so we all know that we're going to die, but not in this fashion, she said. And the, the, the fact that life was getting better, I mean, I was on that inflection point going from negative to positive, and as I'm going, going in the positive direction, bam, something is taken away. My favorite thing in the world is you, my son, and you have died. So she says to the prophet, have you come here to remind me of my secret sin? What's going on here? What the heck? It's not as if life isn't bad enough, but just when I thought that things were getting better, you came and you brought disaster with you. 
So she's not turning, I mean, sort of turning on Elijah, but understandably, right? It's like, wait a minute, I don't understand what's going on because, first of all, I don't understand what went on for me to get the free flour and free olive oil. I never complained, but I didn't really understand. And now, more perplexing yet is that, how is it my son died? I don't know. And then, and I'm somehow having this guilty conscience that says, you know what? It's because of your, your secret sin that is the price you're paying now. So what does Elijah do in this situation? He does something strange. I don't know if you read the story. So he carried, I mean, so put yourself in the, you're carrying the corpse upstairs to your room. You're going to lay him on your bed. Then what Elijah does, he cried out to the Lord. And the Hebrew word is a, is, is a very, very passionate expression. It's not just like, well, Lord. Like, no, Lord, what's going on? You're really like desperate because she's blaming you. I mean, let's make no mistake about it. She is blaming Elijah. So what does Elijah do? He brings that up to God and says, he's not sort of blaming God, and yet he's not saying, Lord, you're such a wonderful God. I mean, obviously, Elijah is also desperate. He's like, Lord, I thought things were, I mean, things were not great because I was fed by the ravens and then fed by this widow, but then what's going on here? And this is what he said, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? So he's expressing his honest feelings in front of God. And Elijah is nothing if not honest in front of God. And I think there's a lesson to be learned. I think a lot of Western Christians believe that, you know, we got to be kind of nice before God and make our words be very, very, may our words be very, you know, nicely chosen and wonderfully kind of phrased. Elijah does none of it. He's like, Lord, like, I'm, what's going on here? I don't understand. Have you actually brought disaster upon this woman and her son to die? And he's basically saying, I am somehow implicated in this plot, so I want some clarity. Or he's basically saying, I want you to answer for this. Elijah, the cliffhanger, once again. Cried out to the Lord in the second time, though. He says, oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. So Elijah's situation is desperate all the way through. And all the way through, he's having to trust not in, in himself, not in his ability He's having to trust a, a group of ravens. He's having to trust a widow. He's having to trust through it all the word of the Lord and the presence and purposes of the Lord. And guess what? In a sort of anticlimactic fas- fashion, the writer says, oh, he's been brought back to life. And so he brings him downstairs, and she's shocked to her core, obviously. And then it says in verse 24, I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. So, this is about the resurrection. This sermon should not be a moral, moral tale of a hero of faith. In fact, this raising of the widow's son from death is point and pointer forward to the death and raising of life again of yet another son. Jesus was surrendered to be crucified. And we do a lot to sanitize the crucifixion of Christ. I was sitting here, i got to be honest with you, I'm sitting here just, just marveling at this architectural, I mean, just like, I, li- I like the way it looks. And I thought to myself, I wonder who the builder is. <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe if I would, because it's just really, and in a setting like this suburban context and nice artwork all around, and we do, wittingly or unwittingly, we do kind of sanitize the death of Christ. Let me tell you what, what I mean by that. And I, I was preaching at First Pres Nashville last Sunday, and I was saying the same thing. I think in most churches, we sanitize the crucifixion of Christ. I am often reminded of the gruesome reality of execution, which is exactly what crucifixion is, 
Whenever I go to Riverbend Maximum Security Prison, I've been teaching there since about 10 years ago. And last semester, I was teaching on death row, which is a really powerful experience for me, to be reminded of the fact that these inmates who are facing their death sentence, they're a lot more aware of who Jesus was the night before he was crucified because Jesus waited for his sentence. Did you know that? He spent a night in prison. That means at least for one overnight, he was waiting for his execution. So this is what we often do. If you were to ask someone in the first century Roman Empire if they could identify the worst possible way for them to die, aside from dying of hunger or in a plague, they will unequivocally say, the worst way for me to die, for anyone to die in the Roman Empire, is to die on a cross. For that was the way the Roman Empire signified and claimed its uncontestable power over its subjects, especially the riffraff, the criminals, those up to no good but sucking up the blood of the empire kind of people. Rome flexed its muscles over them by nailing them to the cross. So imagine if you're an archangel, all right, imagine you're an archangel and you were to ask God, Lord, it's pure craziness that you're going to have your son die. But so if you must do so, how would you like to make sure... Your son died. And let's say you get the answer from the Lord saying, crucifixion, you would actually be horrified and shocked to your core. The angels long to see how the, the redemption will be. And this is not what they anticipated. That's not how we would have written the story. And yet, the resurrection of the greater son would come through precisely that method, the mode of the most horrific and gruesome mode of dying. Remember, friends? God's ways are higher than our ways, just as heavens are higher than the earth. God's way of ensuring life for all of his children had to go through the pathway of death for his one and only beloved son. It is his resurrection that gives us true hope, and he therefore becomes the object of ultimate trust for me and for you. And our entire worship liturgy, the prayer, confession of sin, songs we sing, and the, the Eucharist that we're about to participate in are poignant and powerful and purposeful reminders and communicators of that tangible reality of Jesus being the Son of God, very God of very God, eminently and entirely worthy of our life trust. Friends, I don't know your age, I don't know your life story what you're excited about, what you're afraid of, or whom you're mad at. I don't know any of that. But no matter, no matter, let's come to the table where we encounter risen Christ who will offer himself to us at no cost to you or me, but at all the costs in the cosmos for him. He died for us. He rose again for us. He loves us. He says he likes you so very much that he says, I stand at the door and knock. Will you trust him enough to let him in and say, yes, Lord, I want to entrust myself to you. Let's pray. Gracious God, we have just begun the series on the prophet Elijah, and we're reminded of the fact that it's not because of Elijah's extraordinary faith, but the extraordinary provision of you and the surpassing and transcending words of wisdom that often seem improbable to us that have brought that emergence of that provision for you. Lord, as we come to your table now, may we also think about how improbable these things are, that the eternal word would become enfleshed, 
that this God-man would die for us, that unperishable will be perished, that immortal will experience the blow of mortality, that through all of it, death will be swallowed up in victory. And as we come to the table, not because of any of our own desserts, but because of the entire merit of Jesus Christ, may we come to you humbly and joyfully, recognizing our own undesert, but also recognizing the entire trustworthiness of your word that says, come unto me, all of you, who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest. May this coming to the table give us that rest we need and be the provision for our life journey, both here and now and there and then to come. In your name we prayed. Amen.